Hey, John. Can I ask how you ended up here? I'm up to here. <laughs> John Walker Lynn stands accused of trying to kill his own countrymen. He's a traitor. He admits training in Al-Qaeda camps. He began his journey to Islam after seeing the movie Malcolm X. What could be more American than that? She was just watching a Spike Lee movie. After 9-11, the American government went to Afghanistan to question prisoners. And it was discovered that one of the prisoners was an American named John Walker Lind. But then a few Taliban soldiers staged an uprising. You will never make me believe that John Walker Lynn didn't know what was going to happen that day. There's a white, middle-class American from Marin County, California, the American Taliban. A media frenzy ensued. He was our first terrorism prosecution after 9-11. And that looks like this. He was kept in custody 54 days without a lawyer. They didn't let him go in front of a jury. This is not just about John Walker Lind. It comes down to the idea of treason. And keeping the country safe. They have brought up the cannon to shoot the mouse. Why is treason worse than any other crime? That is a trailer from the Showtime documentary, Detainee 001, and this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and if you don't know the drill already, each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week we're in for a real treat as we welcome acclaimed Emmy-winning director Greg Barker to discuss one of his latest films, Detainee 001. The film documents the unlikeliest of stories. A young man from the San Francisco suburbs journeys to the Middle East and soon finds himself as the face of Islamist extremism in post-9-11 America. Yes, we are talking about John Walker Lind. Greg, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Things are good. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. As we've uh, already noted, the the film is Detainee 001, uh, released in September on Showtime, and I gather it's also on various streaming services and um, uh, digital platforms. So congratulations on, on that. And uh, thank you. I know you've been busy on other projects as well, which we can we can talk about, but. Uh, um, let's first focus on Detainee 001. What we usually ask our guests is usually the first question is maybe you can tell us what Detainee 001 is about. Give us a little bit of a synopsis for our audience. I thought you just did it actually. I thought actually, as you said, this kid from the, becomes the face of radical Islam. I thought, yeah, that's pretty, we should have used that as our, as our blurb. <laughs> so, is that your tagline? So you just explained it, but it was that, you know, I've been for, for a while, I've been trying to make sense of what how the, how the post 9-11 world has changed us. Mm. Um, and I look for like, you know, individual stories to unpack moments in time. Mm. I'm particularly interested in like origin stories of this, you know, the way things unfolded in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 with mm. those first six months to a year, which I think really kind of set the stage for a lot that has followed. This story, John Walker Lind is, uh, it was in my mind for, for years, this kid from Marin County, California, who as a teenager goes on a spiritual quest to find Islam and ends up fighting with the Taliban, joining them before 9-11, but he yeah. meets Osama bin Laden and then he's captured on the battlefield. At the mo same time that Oba Osama bin Laden is escaping through Tora Bora, if you remember that. Yeah. Suddenly this guy is found and he becomes the face of the enemy. And, um, the film is really about our reaction to him. Mm. He himself is kind of a mystery and frankly, about as interesting as most guys are at 18 or 19. He's not actually <laughs> that interesting. <laughs> Thinks he is, but really isn't. But it's the reaction that we have to him is really what the film unpacks through this extraordinary um, 
footage yeah. that that we came across. It's really an experiential film that lives in the moment that takes us back to a time that seems a long, long time ago, but really the moment when a lot of our current world was kind of formed. It's like an origin mm -hmm. story. And it's also just a phenomenal yarn. So um, yeah, that's what it is. It, indeed. I mean, I, I, I remember when it happened, uh, some of the articles that you, you, you do, you know, you put up on the screen. I remember reading that, certainly that New York Times expose on him. And uh, um, my wife and I still remember some of the quotes from some of these articles that, uh, you know, yeah. it lived really large then. And then it just, at least for, for me living here over in the UK, it kind of has gone quiet. And then um, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I think as as you say in your film, it's well doc. It's a it's a well documented story. Um, it lived, played out in front of us on international media. But this is interesting. What you're trying to bring to the big screen that maybe we haven't seen already, reminding us how this all happened and how visceral some some of the uh, some of the reactions were. Yeah, and I think when you look at John's case, you can trace back like the distortions of the justice system to this case, you know, the vilification of the enemy, anybody who's different to this case. Yeah. It really was a, a turning point, a pivot in, 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 in time. And, and, uh, and that's what we decided to kind of just dive mm -hmm. in. And so through this one particular story, you learn a lot about, about who we have become since and, uh, and the consequences of all those decisions made way back when that we're still living with. Yeah. I mean, uh, what if we maybe explain to our audience who are maybe not familiar, I haven't seen the film yet. I mean, what have we gotten wrong about this story? I mean, many of us would have had our impressions of him and um, would have been shaped by the media coverage at the time. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I mean, one thing that struck me was the eight out of 10 charges being dropped. I was I was not aware of that. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you and people who know the story say, well, isn't he still in prison? Isn't he locked away forever? You know, um, what were what were what did we get wrong? You think uh, in terms of the general coverage of this? Well, what we got—I mean, we got wrong—is kind of like fixating on this one one guy as the face of the enemy. You know, that's what and which and he this guy came from the Justice Department, the White House, and particularly the media. I mean, the media was hungry for something for a story. You know, the war. In Afghanistan, the first mm -hmm. wave of the war was kind of petering out. And suddenly this guy is, it became this huge news story. And I was, and I knew intellectually it was a big, cause I kind of remembered like you, yeah. yeah. But when you actually go back and look at the articles and the news reports, yeah. it yeah. was everywhere. Of course, so much has happened since, particularly the invasion of Iraq and all that right, right. kind of makes this fade into in the memory, but it was the biggest story um, yeah. at the time. And, and it really, look, I mean, if you think of Guantanamo, you know, the, mm. the decision to kind of not prosecute these cases within the general US, you know, the, the justice system, mm. this all goes back to this, to this moment, the abuse uh, at the hands of American soldiers that mm. uh, he was subjected to foreshadows um, uh, Abu Ghraib and exactly. one, you know it's all it all began then and the reason that they never really they, there was a last minute plea bargain which gave us kind of an unsatisfactory ending which is one reason I think it kind of just faded away it didn't have an ending he was never convicted neither side the U.S. government or his lawyers wanted to go to trial in the end because the U.S. government mm -hmm. didn't want the abuse and the miss you know the kind of miscarriage of justice that he was mm -hmm that he was that that happened to him exposed his lawyers also did not want a trial with this kid who was you know public enemy number one to happen mm -hmm. it was literally the trial was going to be a mile or two from the pentagon beginning on the first anniversary of 9 11 and they're like you know how do you get a jury that's going to really be sympathetic to this kid so in the end they just they just played out and uh, and it disappeared so we never really knew what happened and uh and so there was never this kind of, you know, closure that we look for an end of the mm -hmm. story. And it just, I think it was just one reason it just kind of like drifted away. And, 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 and you know, he went to prison for, for 17 years and, uh, and is now out. You know, he was released yeah. about two years ago. 
But as you say, it's this whole, um, you know, using 9-11 and the events afterwards for, um, um, you know, lack of due process, you know, justification. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we actually, you know, officially the U.S. government came up with legal reasons for justifying torture and, and, and these, these sort of things. Yeah. And look at you know look at how you know Muslims are still treated in the in the uh, general media and the public perception. I mean, it's quite it's very difficult to be a Muslim American or Britain in Britain in yeah. in the last two decades. The vilification, of course, began sort of shortly after nine eleven, but really was personified in this country, the U.S., by this one case. You know where you know there was no room for nuance, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying John Walker Lind was a <laughs> you know, was a perfect guy, and I'm not excusing anything. But yeah. suddenly, this kid, who was one of our own, how could he be a Muslim, mm-hmm. and how could he want to go on a, some jihad quest? And mm. he, it, it, it vilified that whole community. Mm. Um, and I mean, Muslim Americans wanted nothing to do with this guy. He was kind yeah. of a, you know, a hapless 18, 19 year old. But he became this kind of, you know, yeah. this this face of all that was wrong with, with Islam. And, mm-hmm. and I think we still are living with those consequences, not just his case, but uh, yeah. the broad strokes. Look at how the FBI has and, you know, put, put almost a quarter of its or a half of its entire budget on counterterrorism within this country, focusing on plots that largely don't exist, are made up that the FBI investigates and, and all to stop the next John Walker Lynn. And yeah. uh, it really, it really kind of, um, set in motion the whole chain of events that uh, I think mm-hmm. will history will not look kindly upon at all. So that's why I wanted to make the, the movie. And and plus, as I said before, the footage and everything was just well, incredible. So it was, yeah. as for a, for a filmmaker, it was a dream. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that footage more in a, in a minute. Uh, but uh, what well, is related to that footage, actually, is, I mean, much of the focus, which was I found very interesting, is not what I was necessarily expecting, but it was a sort of a revelation, was this focus on the immediate events leading yeah. to his capture and immediate, immediately after that. Uh, the Battle of, uh, what is it, Kali Jangi and uh, yeah. Mazari Sharif. I mean, that's... Uh, um, is this because you're getting to this origin story? Is this why you focus as much attention as you did on that on that part of this part of the story? Well, I mean, you know, for a lot of people listening are filmmakers, and you make the film, particularly in documentaries, with the material you can get. So, yeah. so you know, the reason that's the focus is a it was great material, but it's what yeah. we have, yeah. you know. And once we found that, oh my gosh, we have all this amazing footage we can access, mm. and it, that the film just wanted to be that it just yeah. wanted it's like this is so incredible it seems like it's from a different era why not just root ground the film in this in this incredible medieval yeah. you know battle and yeah. uh, just let it live there if we didn't have the footage it would have been a totally different kind of film well well, since we're on the topic, I mean how did you get access to I mean this this footage is incredible I can't you've got you've, you know footage of CIA operatives actually questioning John Walker Lind. Um, you know, this footage from the French and German, German journalists, um, the CNN uh, filmmakers, apologies, I, f- I forget his name right now. But, oh, Robert uh, Pelton. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but yeah, you've got... It was, it, it's began amazing. with the Pelton footage. So Robert Pelton yeah. was this guy who was uh, known as... He wrote a book called The World's Most Dangerous Places. Wasn't really a journalist. He was like an adventurer, you know. Yeah, but he'd yeah. go everywhere and he'd spend a lot of time with uh, jihadis and special officers. Yeah. He's there. He's there, you yeah. know, in northern Afghanistan. So, I've done another film uh, where I licensed some of his footage. Right. And Pelton had I'd gone to see him, and he had like you know a garage full of like old like tapes. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah, you just take this stuff and something's yeah. in there, and we digitized a whole bunch of. It. A whole bunch of it. And so we finished that other film and I don't know, I was sitting with an assistant editor, I can't remember exactly, and yeah. going through some of this material and then saw this long interview that Pelton had done with John Walker Lind, which interestingly had never really been seen because the footage itself was in, was subject to a legal battle between the Justice Department and, and CNN, where at the time of the at the, at the time of yeah. Lind's court case, the, the Justice Department wanted to use it as evidence. And CNN was like, you can't, he was just a freelancer, but they took over and said, 
right. you can't we're not going to give you all the rushes and it became this whole thing yeah. so all that yeah. was ever seen was like two or three minutes of the yeah. of the of a package story and the rest went into some archives at the federal courthouse yeah. so it turns out i had all that footage just through pelton's like you know data dump you know yeah. And we had it, and it's like, oh, that's incredible. I've never seen that before. Yeah. And that was the basis of, that's how the film was commissioned. And then yeah. from that, it was just like, you know, the kind of normal process of like, who am I, Who else was there? Let's mm. find this other footage. We tracked, some of it was in Lebanon, some of it was in Germany. People handed us right. rushes. They probably shouldn't have handed us, but, you know, we just kind of like figured it all out. Yeah. And, uh, and like a little detective. I mean, that, that's fun, but it took us four and a half years to make the film and well, probably two and a half years to gather all the material. So that's, well, that's know. amazing. I mean, including that footage that uh, uh, Pelton says that was offered to him originally and he didn't take it, but is it? Uh, yeah, it was like the, the, the yeah, the, there's this key in moment in, when CIA officers on the, at, at this prison where a lot of Taliban and Al Qaeda yeah. prisoners are being held interrogate several of them, including John Walker Lynn. Right. Yeah. It's a decisive moment in his story. And, and one of the CIA officers is then killed later that day in an uprising. And That's right. there was a camera, probably some kind of Northern Alliance intelligence guy was yeah. filming a lot of it. A lot, a lot of that footage has been disappeared, has disappeared. But some of it, we have snippets of it. And we were able to piece together from a lot of different sources um, enough to kind of create a, a, um, a moment there. So well, it's... it was detective work. Yeah, but but it but it's amazing because it's it's like um, it's like it's like a war movie. It's it's like, uh, it's like I mean you, yeah. you you do you do see it all play out. I mean it's uh, yeah. as much as I think you could have could. Uh, it's 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 amazing what's was captured about you know I'd, I'd heard of the battle years ago, but not to to be able to see it as it did. It's uh, um, it's I mean. It's interesting in terms of making filmmaking is I, I generally, I've done several of these films where we get amazing yeah. footage. I don't have dedicated archivists, film archivists do mm. this work because it's almost too, they're very helpful if you want to find one specific thing in an archive in New Zealand right. or something like that. Right. But I have my researchers, my people who speak the language, who know the story, yeah. look for the footage. And uh, it usually unpacks and material that, dedicated archivists are not able mm -hmm. to find. So that's how I approach it. I have the, the APs and the field producers do all the yeah. footage work. Oh, it's, uh, I mean, in, in that regards, I found it, I mean, I know this is a film about John Walker Land, about post 9-11 America, the media see it immediately after that. But in some ways it also becomes as much about sort of there's element of it about war photographers and correspondents, yes. you know, it's, yes. uh, Yes, it's 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 quite incredible what they put themselves through. I think uh, uh, we sometimes get the talking heads who play it safe in Kabul or wherever they are, but these guys are right there, embedded with right on the front lines as much as anyone. Um, and yeah, there's yeah. So when so there's Pelton there, and he's doing his thing, and he's kind of an independent operative. Yeah. Then there were a handful of journalists who came into northern Afghanistan as the Taliban were falling. Yeah. Um, and they came in from, I guess, Uzbekistan, right, and right. they they ended up at this at this medieval fortress called Kala Ijangi outside of Mazar e Sharif in mm -hmm. northern Afghanistan. They were all stringers. These were not like the top guys are flying into Kabul and doing their yeah. standups and wherever. Yeah, These are like yeah. just guys. Yeah. Um, I think they were mostly guys up there, yeah. and they they stumble on this big on this this battle, and. Um, it was interesting talking to them. There's like four, four guys in particular who were the main sort of outside journalists there. Mm. French guy, German guy, British guy, yeah. one American guy, yeah. all freelancers. It was a defining moment in all of their lives. They all thought they were going to die. They all either got totally hooked on the adrenaline of yeah. war reporting or had a moment where they thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to get killed, but it was a, it, you could have actually made a film just about these four mm. guys and they stayed in touch over the years because, you know, they were the only ones there until like within a few days, you know, Dan rather shows up and all that. Right. But at the beginning right. it's just these, these, it's like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> and they're the ones with all this amazing footage and yeah. these experiences. And, and 
Yeah, and they, you know, it's interesting what's happened to them since. It's like some yeah. of them, a couple of them totally left journalism. Some of them are kind of damaged and I don't want to speak for themselves, but it was a, yeah. defi- for, yeah. but it was a defining moment in all of their lives. So totally, yeah. you could get, you could create a moment around that. And it's not, it sounds, it's going to sound a little weird, but it's not, I did a bit of like combat stuff in my earlier days. Mm-hmm. It's not so different from what drove John Walker Lynn to want to be there as well. You know, there was an ideology perhaps to him that not there in the journalists, but this quest right. for adventure that you can have when you're very young and kind of stupid and thinking this is going to be, you know, kind of fun, which it is in a way, is a similarity between young, you know, a young jihadist and a mm-hmm. young reporter mm-hmm. who wants to go up, you know, and that's that 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 drives a lot of this of, of not just the coverage of war, but yeah. war itself. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's, as you say, some of the some of the sentiments they have are very raw. You know, even just talking about the yeah. energy, talking about energy, because there's, I mean, bodies littered all over the place. I mean, I don't, yeah. I know they're not being in, inconsiderate. It's just that I, I can only imagine what it must be like in those situations. Um, and yeah, it is kind of a young man's game. I did have maybe inspired by Dan Rather. I used to think I wanted to go into hurricane. Uh, oh yeah <laughs> places and, and help people um help people in the middle of a hurricane but uh i think my mom's happy i never did do, do that but uh um i mean and then also i think you know and then you do get the uh i think you've some interesting and very uh you know great access to other unsympathetic sources if you want to look at it that way to john walker lind and we've got the daughter of johnny michael span who's the first uh american combatant to be killed in the war on terror we've got the cia operatives and their own blunt assessments so um did they were i mean were they uh i mean uh how how keen were they to be part of this this story uh and share their i mean it must be difficult especially for the daughter yeah she was yeah i think she was a little reluctant um but yeah. she ultimately wanted to, to tell her story um yeah this was a, a weird film to make in that a lot of the key, almost all of the key decision makers at the time, John's lawyers, the government, um, soldiers, just soldiers and the government officials who oversaw the case, didn't want to be a part of it. In fact, didn't want the film to be made, wanted us to go away mm. because none of them come out looking good. Frankly. Right. Um, and, uh, but, you know, some people wanted to talk and Allison Spam was, I yeah. think that just the time was right for her. She's become a journalist partly yeah. because of the way her father's story was mm. sensationalized, her father's death when she was nine or 10 years old. Yeah. She wanted to go into journalism to tell more empathetic stories. Interesting woman. And, uh, you know, a handful of people wanted to talk, but what's interesting is like the key, usually you can crack kind of a, a wall in this mm. case, film. Most people, I think we don't know fully what really, why he was pled out because nobody, including John and his family and the lawyers really want the truth to come out. Mm. And I think that we, it was a wall that we just hit. So I had to find another way of making the film and find people who, who were relevant, who would talk, but the normal mm. people you would make if I was making an investigative film, which I tried in the course of doing this, would just, you know, didn't want mm. to talk. So I mean, when you hit a wall like that, you just but you knew you had enough of a film that 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 was you just make a different film than maybe you you started off with. Like, hope we hoped rather than yeah. knew. In yeah. the end, yes, we did. But it's a it's it's hope. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I think documentary filmmakers are some of the most hope, hopeful people I've ever met. Yeah. So um, um, hey, well. Uh, Hey, let's take a quick break, and then we'll we'll be right back with uh, Greg Barker, the director of Detainee 001. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with award-winning director Greg Barker, the director of Detainee 001, released in September 2021 on Showtime and on streaming services and digital platforms uh, globally, I believe. Um, 
Actually, this is interesting. I come to my notes and I said, interest, my first question after the break is interesting origin story, which you, uh, you did say <laughs> at the very beginning. It's, this is an origin yeah. story. Uh, but what I find was this whole, um, this, this Malcolm X connection and uh, what, what, I mean, you don't go into, don't dwell on it too much as you say. He's, uh, John Walker Lynn is a 19 year old boy. He's not all, or, Young man is not all that interesting, but uh, it is kind of an interesting uh, how this, what sort of at least somehow sparked uh, his journey. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, so, so um, that connection was made in the film by, by John Ray, who's a novelist who wrote yeah. a book called Godsend that's inspired by John Walker Lynn's journey. Yeah. Very different, uh, but it's inspired by John's journey. So he's because I was like racking my brain trying to think. I don't understand what John, what what compelled John to go on this journey. It's not like his right. parents understand. I don't, I don't get it. Mm. And so I read Godson. I thought, oh, that's. Uh, I talked to John Ray, the writer, and just like, how did he make sense of this? And and he'd done this, a lot of research. And mm. you know, there's there's what we know is that he he was he 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 said he watched uh, Malcolm X, the Spike Lee movie, as a kid, yeah. and yeah was kind of inspired by that. We also know there's other weird things. He was, this is like in his 14 or 15, but he was like yeah. blogging as a, as a, a rapper, right? As an African-American rapper. And, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just kind of clearly a kid in search of an identity. So yeah. Yeah. that's, so lots of teenagers go through that. They don't all end up meeting Osama bin Laden. So, you know, what then takes somebody yeah. from a mixed up teenager looking for a purpose to then, into the battlefield in Afghanistan, it's kind of, it's, I think it's impossible to, to know without mm. going to some deep, deep cycle and analysis of John. I doubt he may not even know himself, you know? Mm. So I didn't want to speculate about all of that. Yeah. And I guess it's, uh, you were talking about uh, hitting walls. I mean, um, do we know where John Walker Lind is now? Um, did you? Yeah, he's, you... well, he's released, sorry. Sorry, did I what? No. Oh no, I no. Go ahead. I mean, do you do we know where he's re is now? And did you try to reach out to him, or was that even a consideration? Uh, uh, well, we don't know exactly where he is. He's probably in Northern Virginia because mm. he's under still under some kind of court supervision for a period of years yeah. after his release. Under the and that that supervision is within the jurisdiction of the court where he was tried, the federal court in Northern Virginia. He's probably yeah. there. You know, he, uh, yeah, we tried to, uh, I mean, I was in touch with his lawyers and his family several times, met his father, met the lawyers, talked mm. to his mom on several times. And, you know, it looked, and through them, was in contact with, with John in prison. The unit that he was held in, in federal prison, mm. prevents any outsiders from contacting him. Right. Uh, so it was all indirect. We thought he was going to talk for a time. We thought the family would cooperate. In the end, I think for the reasons I've said before, they decided it wasn't in their interest. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I, I get it. I think, you know, we don't know what John really thinks now, and they didn't want to make things worse for him. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> so, and I think they're also worried about somebody coming after him, some crazy person, if they knew what he looked like, which is not, I, I get that too, but we tried mm. and, um, and uh, I wish he'd have talked, but he, he didn't. But in the end, I also concluded he gave one interview to, John, to Robert Pelton right, right after he was captured. It's yeah. a great interview. It's the core of the film. And it's that's also true. immediate. So if you yeah. want to understand what somebody felt back then 20 years ago, that's a more accurate source than somebody who's 20 years later who's we all remember things and twist our narrative yeah. to benefit ourselves. I'd rather know what he said at the time. So that's, that is the... Uh, kind of becomes the spine of the film and I think yeah. gives more insight than anything else is gonna uh, is gonna give. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I mean he's it's all uncensored. He's not expecting to be interviewed and um Pelton even talks about letting the cameras roll even you know, yeah. after. Um and it's like uh, when I, I did this doc called the final year about the Obama yeah, White House. Yeah exactly. So, but I had this yeah it's like I and I'd known people going into that who'd been in government and then mm. at, left. And they always talk different when they're in government. So I made a decision just very early on. We were going to stop filming the day that these guys left office. So I didn't want the spin. You know, it's like, yeah. and I want to yeah. 
because everyone everyone sort of spins their past. It's like let's yeah. capture somebody in the in the moment, and that yeah. informed me my thinking about John. It's like I don't really. I mean, I would love to see where it looks like now. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to hear what he thought about back then because he's just going to twist it because we yeah. all do that. So yeah. I'd rather have the immediate moment. Yeah. I think that's a that's, I think that's a very interesting point and uh, I think a quite a insightful one. I mean, um, I mean, looking at this film in a in a different way. I mean, um, it, it, timing is obviously impeccable. Um, the uh, yeah. obviously you had an idea about the twentieth anniversary that's always been out there, but uh, and we had the hit John Walker Lynn's released uh, a few years ago, uh, but. Uh, as you've already, you kind of alluded to, is a story that had been, I guess, an idea had been in, running around in your head for a little while, but you could have done various different subjects looking at 20 years on, and, and I know you have looked at other elements to this, but um, I mean, I think you've kind of alluded to it already, but what really drew you to the story now? Now is the time to, to tell it, or was it, was it, as you say, it was part of because you got this access to the... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, now it's almost, you know... the four and a half years ago when we decided to start making yeah. it maybe more than that. <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. kind of like, it wasn't like, Oh, well, let's get this thing for the 20th anniversary. And right. it was just like, here's a story that we wanted to, yeah. I wanted to tell. And the exec at Showtime who commissioned it, Vinny Malhotra also was particularly interested in the story and we'd worked yeah. together before. So we're just like, okay, maybe let's look at this. So the timing, you know, was really just, this is when we finished the film and we decided okay let's let's release it around the 20th anniversary of 9-11 of course we had no idea that in afghanistan would mm. implode and that john walker lynn ended up fighting for the winning side in the end yeah. the taliban yeah. are still in yeah. control yeah. <laughs> so, i know so. i mean did you have any clue i mean because you you're going to be modest about this but you've done a lot of films related to this to this region and to this topic, um, looking at the twenty-year war on terror, right? did you have any clue that the that no, you didn't have a clue maybe that the U.S. would be withdrawing in August of twenty twenty-one? But you know, could you see could you see this day coming? All you know, the, this is where Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, without doubt, yeah, you could. Yeah. I mean, we. I mean, yes. I mean, I think uh, I've been there like four times, not in a while, but. Um, I remember being there in 2007 and everyone was talking about the Taliban coming back. Everyone, yeah. you know, and uh, it was held off for a while. And, but you could see that it was for lots of reasons. The mission, the U.S. mission was misguided. The government was corrupt. Uh, the population in the rural areas was tired of war. Lots of other things. Um, so, yeah you could kind of see that it was that, that this was the end game. And I think a lot of, a lot of U S officials, military intelligence, all political mm. could all see this day coming too. And they just didn't really want to admit it. So mm. yeah, mm. there's lots to unpack there, but, but yeah, I think, I hope, you know, there's a, there should be a room to really kind of figure out what, what went wrong and the mistakes that were made mm. the miss, the miss, uh, Mistaken priorities, I think is the way I'd describe it. Because the, the, the origin of what happened, what went wrong, you can trace again, not through the John Walker Lynn film, but like through the early ways that the military operated in, in, mm. in, in Afghanistan, you can see the stage being set for, yeah. what, for how this all would all play out. And do you see this as the end of the war on terror? Is, this, is it so nice that you get these little bookends? You've got 9-11 Afghanistan invasion and then now the withdrawal. And is that an end, or do you see we're we're still living with these legacies today, and we'll continue to do well, so? I think we're still. I, I mean, the war on terror was like it's completely absurd term. What does that mean? Well, exactly. You know, there was, yeah. <laughs> um, but but uh, I think, yeah. I mean, it is a it is a it is a convenient way of of framing this era. Um, I think you know there will be other terrorist attacks. They will be shocking, yeah. but I think I think. You know, it's yeah. Who knows? I don't want to predict the future, but definitely it's an era that is 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 put receding into the background. And uh, are you gonna? Are you putting it off to the side now in terms of what you're you're working on? I mean, you've done a few films. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this specific thing, um, and yeah. you know, the kind of the trajectory of nine eleven and how it's affected yeah. us. 
yeah, I mean, I'm still interested in geopolitics and all that, but, mm. but I think I've hopefully done with that. Mm. <laughs> this particular story. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, in, indeed. Um, I mean, uh, going back to some of your, your your other work. I mean, you've already mentioned the last year. Um, obviously, you had Manhunt about finding yeah. some, you know, uh, finding Bin Laden. I mean, how do you gain? Su- I mean, you can even focus on any any of your films, but like, uh, how do you gain such access to high profile subjects? That must be. I mean, that's. You know, to get the, I mean, I just find it amazing. You get the national security advisors to say, and the Obama White House to say, yeah, come on in, film us for, for a year. How does, how does that happen? I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> just, I really don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've always felt interested and comfortable in that world and fascinated yeah. by it yeah. and uh, intrigued by how power changes and affects people and uh um i guess you know when i was a when i was just starting out after college i worked uh, in dc for c-span yeah. uh, for brian lamb <laughs> okay and, uh, really <laughs> and yeah and did a lot of interviews i've set up a lot of his interviews and yeah and met a lot of people met a lot of people you know yeah. uh, senators you know <laughs> all sorts of people in dc and there was a. Uh, there so it kind of demystified that world for me Mm. and uh and the brian taught me to ask very simple questions and to not like and uh not be kind of thrown by by positions of power and uh Mm. so i kind of saw a little bit of it up close and yeah i I don't know and i just i over time i mean i knew some people who ended up going into government and saw their kind of Mm. transition and was intrigued by it all I don't know. I don't. I said it just was something I was drawn to, and and yeah. uh, um, when I started doing documentaries, um, I found that it was a subject I was comfortable with, and also I was able to kind of talk to people in those positions and get them to hopefully open up. And yeah, without kind of being a part of it, I don't consider myself a part of a national security yeah, esta- yeah, operation yeah, or the yeah, establishment yeah. at all. But but I I kind of empathize with people in those jobs and i always ask myself like what would i have done hmm. if i was in those moments i had a really interesting experience i did a project for frontline about the genocide in rwanda which yeah. which began as just like a trip i took to rwanda with them with a friend of mine from the from the region and then but i ended up sort of through that sort of meeting a lot of people who were in key decision making positions in Washington and and the UN, like Mm. Secretary of State and National Security Advisors and all that, and who did not, who kind of totally failed and were haunted by their their decisions during the genocide. And I realized, talking to them, I thought, I can understand all of their chain of thought, like why they decided it was in Mm. America's interest to do nothing while a million people are killed in three months. And that was kind of horrifying to me. I was like, I... And I, I, I had this moment where I thought I'm, I'm interested in that process that allows, you know, decent, rational people to make horrendous choices. And, uh, and then they're haunted by them um, in a way that really kind of, you know, they can't ever let it go in their mind. And, um, and I just thought there was a human, there's human stories in that I wanted to keep unpacking. And that's kind of like informed how I approach a lot of these. Mm. Like, how do you talk to somebody who was behind the torture program, the yeah. CIA? You know, they're living with that all the time. Some of them think they were right. Some of them think they were wrong. They're haunted yeah. by it, but it's it's front and center in in, in their own psyche. Mm. And I find that interesting. But I mean, much I more guess... interesting than just kind of like attacking you from the outside. I'd rather understand it from the inside out. Well, exactly. And you get in on the inside, and it would be very easy for these people to say no, wouldn't it? I mean, they could just say, "Why? Why let a film crew come in?" I mean, they're they, yeah. It, that's in an uncontrolled environment in a way because. You know, if it's if it's your typical CNN or Fox or News or whoever it is that comes in to do an interview, that's kind of set. You know the parameters and where it's going to go. Yeah. But to to be in a to be uh, basically the f- fly on the wall, sort of behind you know, you know behind the scenes sort of uh, crew. I mean, it would be. I, I just it. I I'm just I'm almost kind of asking from a personal standpoint because I've I have some you know. I've, actually I'm aware of a project where I, I too have been surprised by some 
politicians saying yes <laughs> to mm-hmm. to people following around with a camera, you know. And it's mm-hmm. uh, I do wonder if it's if it's is is it because people in these positions are thinking already about their legacy or their justifications or or what it is that why they would say well it, you know, it can be it can yeah. be i mean also people want to tell their stories it can be yeah. about legacy and but i think the so if all they care about is legacy then and that's all that's coming across in the in the footage it's not going to be interesting it won't work yeah it's not interesting yeah. so yeah. you have to they have to then break through and that's the job of the, the of filmmaker in the moment yeah. is just like to get past that and you know in the case of the final year i mean there was direct conversations where i had with with people at the White House is like, this is not good enough. Like, you know, we're just getting, it just sounds like you're spinning or you're like, yeah. we need, it's yeah. not real enough. And, yeah. uh, and, and enough of them were smart enough to, to think, oh yeah. But I, I know other people trying to film inside this administration who are hitting all sorts of brick walls. And so it's, you know, it's, you have to find just both the right approach and also the willingness of people in those positions to take a bit of a risk and, mm. Often that's those people are incredibly risk averse with yeah. the way bureaucracies work. Yeah. So you know it's a it's um it, it doesn't always work out, but it's yeah. often just luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and when were you in DC? When I was there in the uh, I was there. I went to college in at George Washington. And I lived in, in DC up until. Uh, early nineties. Okay, yeah. I was I was there through early nineties to the late nineties. So uh, okay, yeah, yeah, no, it's a uh, yeah, no, it's a, and I was back there a few weeks ago, which uh, in in many ways it hasn't changed. No, DC <laughs> does not change. This is why I left. <laughs> yeah, I think it's well, which which brings us back. I mean, the thing that struck me was that because you've got the scene in the film where John Ray says, "I I know what it's like to want to escape from your hometown." Yeah. And he yeah. was born in Washington, D.C. And, yeah. you know, and I mean, I know we say suburbs of San Francisco, but uh, John Walker Lynn keeps saying he's from Northwest D.C. when he gets interviewed, you know, where, where yeah. are you from? You know, it's uh, yeah. I thought it was very interesting. These two, diff- uh, <laughs> two different individuals yes. <laughs> both trying yes. to escape Washington, D.C. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, like my wife did as well. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I think I don't. I'm also aware that uh, well, we've got a little bit more time. I'm aware you have a okay. k- Chelsea kickoff that you want to catch uh, against yeah. Malmo, That's but what I'm uh, yeah. um, uh, what's I mean, what's uh, next for you? I think I did. Has this White Coat Rebels has also come out? Has that already been released, or is that it's uh, not been released yet? They're doing a deal at the moment, so it'll it'll come out sometime later this year or next year. Okay. Um, I'm I, honestly, I'm kind of I'm focusing mostly on narrative at the moment. Um, I, I, I did a feature I, for, for Netflix and that's what I'm really doing. I did that and then I had three documentaries that I had committed to before I did that. So yeah. when John Detainee was one of them, like yeah. the Rebels. So I, which I love docs, but I feel like the documentary, to, I think docs have become much more commercialized, which is great. There's a lot of work, mm-hmm. but I think the subject matters that people are willing to tackle at least you know, broadcasters, mm. most broadcasters, the streamers are willing to tackle are becoming less adventurous. So, you know, I'm, I'm also just interested in getting to authentic emotions. And I think um, for me at the moment, at this point in my career, I'm more interested in exp- unpacking those through through narrative, through fiction, but drawn from, drawn from real life. So uh, that's well, what I'm doing now. I think that's very interesting. I mean, without burn- burning any bridges, is, is, is it... I mean, in terms of the broadcasters, people are commissioning things. You think, um, is what in what ways are they? Be, I mean, uh, are they just really much more commercially focused? So they've what do they do? Their focus groups and know what subjects they think will and won't work, and so that determines what they do and don't commission. Is that kind of what I mean, we're getting to? In broad strokes, probably yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I think we I think you know people talk about a golden age of documentaries. I think yeah. we just lived through it. I think that's it's. I think there's a lot of work, um, mm. and you know it's you can get twenty million dollars for a Billie Eilish doc, documentary, which is great. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not interested in making that movie. That's not yeah. why I got into documentaries. And um, yeah, uh, so you know, but that's that is what if you're if 
if you're looking for eyeballs, looking for the big payout, looking for something that will appeal to the broader academy and get you an award, those are the kind, which is, <laughs> this is a mindset that's driving a lot of this stuff. This mm. is what gets made. And I think the, if you look at what, like, say, Sheila Nevins did at, at HBO, mm. HBO was in a particular moment where that company has changed now. And, right. and for lots of, you know, economic reasons, but there was a moment where, and, and what was what Netflix was doing early on, what yeah. like CNN films, a lot of the stuff was yes. actually, you know, really sort of transformative and saved this, you know, art form that had been, that had been kind of, you know, not really having much impact and suddenly giving it, you know, a whole new lease on life. And, uh, and there's an audience for it. But I think I think it's I think it's shifting now. So it's kind of I consider myself. I'm not sure if any of the films I made in the last 12, 13 years would be commissioned today. It's interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we were in a moment in time where because of the aftermath of 9/11, people there was a hunger for this stuff. So yeah. you know, yeah. it, that's part of it. But I think, um, but I think now things have just shifted, um, and it's much more commercial and market driven and. Which is, you know, it is what it is. I'm not complaining, but it is the reality. But I'm, I'm just personally interested in, in at the same time looking at these kinds of stories from a different perspective, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and I'm sort of tired of people hiding their emotions. And I'd rather you can control them more in fiction. <laughs> so, it, so I think it's, it's kind of just, it's just more satisfying for me at this moment. It, it's amazing how that's kind of, well so we can put you uh, greg barker on the record that the golden age of documentaries has come to an end is uh i would I say think, that yes yeah, yeah. not that anybody cares what i would say <laughs> but yes i think it's over <laughs> and and i have to say as a as a podcast our uh we the aforementioned Billie eilish documentary we have we have featured that. We did uh, interview. Which RJ did a great job. It's he a, did an yeah, amazing. My daughter. It's amazing. He, he, yeah, he did I'm an amazing job. Yeah. And it's our most popular episode ever. And, you know, we've okay. we've benefited from it. But, yeah. yes, I, you know, know where you're, where you're coming from. I mean, I find this interesting because I think what you've said probably, I don't know how many years ago, but not all that long ago, people would have said to get all those authentic, that, that authenticity you're talking about, you needed to go to docs to get it. But now it's yeah. it's completely flipped in in terms of the way you're seeing things. That to to still capture that authenticity that and emotions that many of us look for in in film, it's now got to be it's back to narrative. At least for me, at least. I mean, yeah. so, you know, unless you have amazing. So like, obviously, you know, take Billy Eilish. So they're filming all that stuff. I mean, the the movie what he got with her. Contemporary yeah. stuff is really fantastic. Um, yeah. He was totally inside her world and had trust. Yeah. Um, but all of that was made possible, I think, because of the footage that they had already shot. So, you know, mm. somebody in her, on her team went to somebody and said, we have all this great footage and we want to package it through a documentary. Yeah. That's how that thing would happen. So yeah. there's a, with all respect to everybody involved, there's a commercial imperative yeah. in the interest of the artist to tell that story. Yeah. And, you know, that is not the kind of, there was no, no imperative from John Walker Lynn to get this thing out there. <laughs> so it's a different approach. But I, I think it's also just, it's very commercial and it's all great. I'm not disparaging that. And it's, yeah, I understand. It, I'm glad, yeah. but it's, it's not, it's, it's shifted um, yeah. in, uh, in what, what people want to make and what people want to see, which is things go in waves and you have to just recognize that, the wave has that one certain wave crested and we're in mm. a different wave now. Okay. All right. Well, we are starting to come up to the end of our time. Um, the most biting question of the, of the, of the session, of the episode, uh, why, why Chelsea? Why did you have to pick Chelsea as your, as your team? <laughs> I'll tell you why, because well, a, my, my producing, my doc producing partner, John Batsek is a, uh, Chelsea fan. Yes, but my yes. son, so I lived in London for years, 18 years, and I really didn't pay any attention to football. I went to a couple of matches, but didn't yeah. really care. But when we moved to the States, my son was four, born in yeah. London, and he started getting interested in soccer, and yeah. he wanted yeah. to figure out what team to support. And he looked at a map of where he was born, which was uh, uh, <laughs> St. Thomas's Hospital. Right. And he... and. And you're not going to like this because you're a Crystal Palace, but he looked at a map and he's like, what's closest? And he measured to, to the stadiums 
And Crystal Palace was a little bit closer, but he's like, I don't want to be a Crystal Palace fan. <laughs> so then he looked, and the next one <laughs> was Chelsea. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to be a Chelsea fan. And that's yeah. what happened. So I'm, yeah. now I'm, I'm, as people know me, will say, I'm pretty obsessed by it. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's fun. So it's the only sport that I follow. Living back in the States now, I don't really follow U.S. sports, but I do follow Premier League football pretty closely. Well, it's a. I think it's a. I think it's a great season, and Chelsea's got a great team. I'll. I'll begrudgingly admit. Um, no, I'm glad. I'm glad for my third son that we didn't go that route because he was born in Watford, and the hospitals literally bang right next next door to, okay. to Vicarage Road yes. Stadium. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then we moved to South London. It was the same thing. I've got this American dad, as you know, in England. Your allegiances are passed down through the generations, usually. Yeah. And who do we support? And um, for whatever reason, I had taken a disliking to Chelsea. So I said, well, you know what? Uh, closest, the closest team at that point, they weren't even in the Premier League yet. So I took them to a, a riveting Chelsea, uh, Crystal Palace Blackpool match in the championship. Oh, okay. And, and yeah. uh my son's been hooked ever since for, and I feel bad for him too because he's just gonna—it's gonna be lifelong, uh, a life full of misery. Um, uh, but Greg, thank you, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Now I know you need to go take a little bit of a break, sit down. I don't know where you're based. Maybe it's a little too early to break, open up In a can. LA. Uh, yeah, well, so, it's a, yeah, it's a LA. It's a it's eleven fifty-five. Yeah, a little so, bit too early. Yeah, I'm making another coffee. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe at halftime. Um, but uh, yeah. enjoy the. The match it was it's been a pleasure having you on just to remind our listeners it's greg barker the director of detainee 001 uh, if you haven't seen it yet it's been released on showtime that was in september and you can find it on various digital platforms so uh greg thanks so much it's been a pleasure having you on and hopefully we can have you on a, again even though you're only doing narratives now <laughs> thank you matthew really enjoyed it all right Take we'll care. let you sign off i've got some other stuff to go through but you don't need to be around for that so thanks again okay all right. Take thank care. You. It was fun. See you. Take care. All, All right. right. Bye-bye. Enjoyed it. Thank you. So once again, a big thank you to uh, Greg Barker for uh, coming on to uh, Factual America uh, for this podcast uh, episode. Uh, before saying thanks to others, I just want to alert want to alert you to an exciting new collaboration we will be announcing in the coming weeks with a leading film magazine. So please watch this space for more details on that. Um, do want to give a shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in Eskrick, England, which is just outside of York. A big thanks as always to Nevena Paunovic, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Greg onto the show. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.